Good morning, church family. It's good to see you all this morning. Um, And always, always so good and so needed uh, to sing of the grace that uh, without which we would be lost. Uh, We would be uh, hopeless in the world, but Christ is good. He is our hope. It's good to sing of his mercy together. All right, well, as as we just read, we're going to be in Luke chapter 16, if you'd like to follow along with us this morning. Well, there was a movie in the mid-80s that told the story of the famous bandit El Guapo. Maybe you remember this movie. Um, Maybe many of you don't. El Guapo and his gang were terrorizing the small fictional town of Santa Poco. And when no one could be found to stand up to El Guapo, the people of Santa Poco, they sent word out. They, 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 They sent for help from a famous cowboy gang that they knew in California who were known for standing up wherever there is injustice. And they begged them, come to Mexico and fight against El Guapo for us. And when the cowboys received word, it sounded like a great gig. Uh, So they all headed to Santa Poco. Ned Niederlander, Dusty Bottoms, and Lucky Day. You may know them as the Three Amigos. A couple of days after they arrived in the village, I know many of you don't know the three amigos, and so you're in for a treat. Uh, Probably not, but a couple of days after they arrived, El Guapo showed up with his gang into the town. And so the amigos, they put on a show, they they rode around, they shot their guns in the air, ready to face off against El Guapo. But the battle came to a screeching halt when one of El Guapo's gang fired their first shot, hitting Lucky in the arm. At this point, everything stops. Lucky marches over to the henchman, grabs his pistol, opens it up, empties out the chamber and says, oh great, real bullets. You see, the three amigos were actors, performers. They looked great, depending upon your definition of great. Uh, They said heroic things. Uh, But when they realized that they were in a real gunfight, they were exposed. The amigos knew they were about to die. Uh, And if you've seen the scene, of course, they looked at each other and they just began to cry like babies. They were pretenders, performers, fakes. And in today's text, Jesus is going to expose and has been exposing the Pharisees as religious actors. And he's, he's going right after their shows of righteousness warning them where this fakery is ultimately going to lead them. And so as we look at Christ's words to them today, I pray that the Lord might begin to dismantle our proneness to religious acting, to religious performing. And so as we go through the text, I want us to see three warnings for the religious performer. And then we'll end with a hope. So number one, the religious performer justifies self. Number two, the religious performer uses the weak. Number three, the religious performer can't hide forever. And then lastly, we'll close with hope. Let's go again now to the Lord in prayer and ask him that he would speak to us. Right where you are, would, would you pray now that the Lord would push out any distractions, that he would convince you by his spirit Uh, of your need 
and that he would do a work, that you would hear something from his word and hear and understand and see who Christ is in a way uh, that you haven't, uh, that he would change you. So would you pray and ask him to give you ears to hear? And now would you pray for me um, that I would only speak what Christ would have me say, uh, that he would be lifted high, that I would be low, and that, that by the scriptures this morning, by the words of Christ, that we would be ministered to. So would you pray now for me? Oh, Lord, would you help us today? Uh, Would you give us ears to hear? Would we see in your word uh, the beauty of the mercy that you give, the beauty of the grace that is ours through Christ? And would that cause us to come humbly, moved and humbled by your love? So lead us now by your spirit. We ask it in the name of Jesus, amen. Well, we begin with number one, the religious performer justifies self. So starting there in verse 14, as we just read, uh, we read these words. Uh, The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and scoffing at him. And isn't, isn't it amazing? This has happened over and over. Jesus has literally been preaching about the Pharisees, story after story. He's preached to them. He's preached about them. He's warned his disciples about them and they've heard it and yet they are not phased. In fact, how do they respond here? They laugh, they scoff. Last week's parable, what Jesus was literally telling his disciples, warning them, be generous with your money. It's an opportunity for you to help others see Christ. It's to see the good news. He was saying, if you're stingy, that shows something about your own heart that maybe money is your master and not God. And and what do the Pharisees do? They scoff, they laugh. But it wasn't just that story. Before that, in Luke 15, Jesus told the story of the prodigal son and the Pharisees in that story are the older brother who refuses to rejoice when the the lost son comes home. Before that, they they were the shepherd who didn't want to go after the lost sheep. Uh, as Jesus is the shepherd who goes, leaves the, one, leaves the 99 and goes for the one. It's everywhere. Each story happening over and over again. They were the barren tree, the rich fool, the whitewashed tombs. They're never the hero in Jesus' stories. But they have no ears to hear it. They hear the sermon and they think, we're good. They're the opposite of the Carly Simon song. You're so vain. You probably don't think this song is about you. But it is, it's totally about you. I wrote it about you. Look at, look at what he says in verse 15. You are the ones, it's about you. You are the ones who justify yourselves in the sight of others. He's saying, it's you. They say the loudest prayers. They blow trumpets when they give. They put sinners in their place. You justify yourself and you do it to make yourself feel good and look good. You want to look righteous. And worse yet, people are buying it. 
people are buying it. But, but he goes on there in verse 15. He says, but God knows your hearts for what is highly admired by people is revolting in God's sight. He said, God, God sees through it. You can't fool him. You may have everyone else in the world fooled, but not God. You may have even fooled yourself, but God is revolted. You're already exposed and you don't even know it. But notice he doesn't say that they justify themselves to God. Who do they justify themselves to? To others. And isn't that what religious performing is? Instead of being right before God, forgiven and free, that's, that's real, that's true justification. Religious performing is settling for doing what's right to be seen right before people. We wanna look right in front of people. That's self-justification. So true justification, being right, and then there's self-justification, which is looking right. Look at verse 16, he goes on. It says, the law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God has been proclaimed and everyone is urgently invited to enter it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter in the law to drop out. So to be truly just, it's, it's more than just to live up to the standard of others. That, that would be easier. No, Jesus is reorienting them to their actual standard, his standard. And his standard is be perfect. So if you want to be truly just according to the law, truly right before God, perfect. That's what you gotta be. And of course we know there's no way to get to perfect because we aren't even born right with God. We didn't start right with him and we can't make ourselves right with him. We need to be made right. And this is the work of the cross of Christ. This is the gospel. This is actual justification. His death for us in our place. If you trust that, that he died for you, then Jesus declares you right. His death for your sin. You're now right. It's a legal pronouncement. It's finished. That's why he said it on the cross. It's finished. And because of Christ, we now, we can be truly just. We can be as right as Christ is. He takes our sin and we get his perfect obedience, his perfect heart, his perfect record. Does that mean we're done with sin? That we're done sinning? No, unfortunately. He's still working on us, still sanctifying us, still growing us. But how he sees us now as we're justified, when we, when we are saved, he sees us now as right, as holy, as just. That's what it is to be a Christian. Not that the father dropped or crossed out a single letter of the law, but that Christ lived the letter of the law perfectly for you. But that's not what the Pharisees want. They don't want true justification. They don't hunger and thirst for righteousness as Jesus taught. Remember back in John chapter five, this is what Jesus said to the Pharisees. He told them, you pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them. And he's talking about the, the law. He said, you, and, and yet they testify about me, but you are not willing to come to me so that you may have life. He's saying the law, it pointed to me, but you won't come to me. They were too busy being experts in God's law that they missed God himself. 
Rightness with God doesn't come from effort. It doesn't come from expertise. It must come from God. You must receive it from Christ. And this is the danger of religious performing. That in place of true righteousness, the performer just settles for the acclaim of other people. And this is why the Pharisees laugh at Jesus' teaching. Religious performers don't handle criticism well. They don't take rebuke and correction well, do they? Do you ever see this in yourself? Uh, what, what is your instinct when someone approaches you about a sin that you committed? What's your, what's your first reflex? I'll just let you think about that for a minute. Do you try to justify yourself? Do you, do you try to make yourself look better for them to defend? Is that just me? I think we're in this together, right? We're being honest today? Yes, that's what we do. But why? Bob Thune uh, in, in this, uh, and Will Walker in this great book that they wrote together, The Gospel-Centered Life. Some of you have read this book. Um, it, it's, but it, it talks, they talk about one of the primary ways uh, that we justify ourselves is that we minimize our sin. And they, they give six ways, uh, though, though I'm sure there are more, six ways that we minimize our sin. We can do it by defending. So we, we try to explain ourselves, make a defense. We do it by faking. We, we pretend we're somebody better or somebody that we're not. By hiding, we conceal it. We just, if I don't even let you see it in the first place, then, then, then I'm good, I'm just. Get the bad stuff out of sight. By exaggerating, we talk up how good we really are. Like, I'm, I'm gonna tell you how, about all the good parts of me. By blaming, uh, it's somebody else's fault. It's not mine. Or by downplaying, that's not a big deal. I mean, everybody does that. And why do we do this? I think it's because we, we don't, no one wants to look like a fool. No one wants to look wrong. We, we want to look right. We want to look godly. And so what do we do? We fake it. We shield ourselves from people who might actually correct us or might even see the, the darker parts of us. We blame others, it's, it's them. We act right, we perform, put on a show. And the worst thing about it is, sometimes it works. Sometimes people buy it. Sometimes we hide our sin and, our, and we fake righteousness so well that we begin to even believe our own performance. And friends, if, if looking right in front of others, if that's your aim, you will miss out on the peace that you're meant to experience in Christ. The rest that is yours in Christ, you'll miss it. Can, can I encourage us that the next time a brother or a sister comes to you and, and is trying to help you see a sin in your life, instead of explaining yourself, maybe just be quick to say, forgive me, forgive me. Instead of downplaying your sin, oh, it wasn't that bad, it wasn't a big deal, just, just let them know, oh man, I need the gospel even more than what you just saw. I have to confess things to the Lord that are darker than what you've just seen. Thank you for helping me see it. Instead of blaming, I wouldn't have done that. It was, it was you, you did this first, that's what made me do that. No, just own it. Just own it and say, man, thank you for helping me see it. I probably wouldn't have seen it had you not said it. Thank you. 
But don't stop there. Then go to the Lord. Confess your sin to the Lord. Receive his mercy. The Lord, it's the Lord that truly cleanses you, not your, not your friend. The Lord cleanses you and performers rarely experience the mercy of God like that. Too busy hiding. They rarely experience the mercy of, of friends and Christian brothers and sisters. Self-righteousness is fleeting, but being right with God, abiding in him, oh man, there's, there's lasting peace in that. Number two, the religious performer uses the weak. He uses the weak. Look again at verse 16, where he had just said the law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God has been proclaimed and everyone is urgently invited to enter it. Now, the Pharisees hate this for a couple of reasons. First, because they think they've already done it. That first part, the law and the prophets, check, done, finished, they got it. We're good on that. Remember, they're self-justified. But secondly, they hate it because they don't think anyone else is worthy. Everyone else invited in? Nobody, nobody's worth, these people aren't worthy. We're the worthy ones. But this is a dig at them. Look at verse 17. But it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter in the law to drop out. Jesus is actually warning them. He's warning the ones that think they're holy. He's warning them about their, their propensity to lower the standard of the law. They think that they've kept the standard high, but he's saying, no, 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 you've actually lowered it. And you've, you've lowered the law to use and to mistreat others and you've done it so that you would look good. And you, and you may be going, okay, well, how, how, is, how is this a dig at them? What, what is, how is this a warning? If you, if you remember back in, in Matthew 22, remember this conversation, it's actually in a couple of the, the gospels. Uh, the, Matthew 22, the Pharisees, they're asking, these law experts are asking Jesus, which is the greatest commandment of the law? And so how does Jesus answer? You remember this? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and with a heart and your soul and your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. So all the law and the prophets sum, summarized, summed up in these two ideas, love God and love others. And I, I love the response that we see, actually see in, in Luke, uh, that Luke records in this interaction. You remember this, that Luke, here's what Luke says. Uh, he says, but wanting to justify himself, he, this law expert, asks Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So Jesus has says, not one stroke of the law can change. Nothing can drop out. And the Pharisee, the Pharisee reply is, yeah, but technically, technically, how much do I need to love? Like exactly who? Who do I need to love? And despite the aim of the law being love, particularly to the lowly and to the weak, the Pharisees despised the lowly, despised the outcast. They hated sinners. And so they would create dozens of clarifying commands as a cover for their sinful treatment. Jesus is saying, you use the law to cast people out. 
And those very people that you cast out are now being invited in. You have hated those that God loves. You have oppressed those that God's law sought to protect. And even worse, you tried to look godly while doing it. And I think Jesus moves from this and I think he's gonna go straight to an example. And this may sound kind of out of left field, but I do think it makes sense as we look at the flow of the passage as Jesus preaching to the Pharisees and then he's gonna follow this verse with a story about them. Uh, And look at verse 18, look what he says. He says, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. And everyone who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Now that, that may like make you sit up a little bit and go, hmm, okay, uh, what's this about? I, I don't think this is a full address on marriage and divorce, it's not. Uh, the focus here, I think of Christ is on the Pharisees. So, so we're not gonna stop and talk at length about marriage and divorce because I, I think that's not the point of the passage. There are great passages that, where the scriptures really teach on this idea in more fullness. Matthew 19, 1 Corinthians 7, Ephesians 5, uh, particularly Matthew 19 and 1 Corinthians 7. I think they give a larger context for understanding divorce and remarriage. But I, but I do wanna give a little word here about this topic. We, we believe, we, at Redeemer, we believe that the Bible's clear that marriage is a lifetime commitment between men and women. It's a, it's, a, it's a man and a woman, that marriage covenant, that it would only be broken by the death of a spouse. However, the Bible also lays out biblical reasons why a divorce may happen. Because of sin, in cases of sexual immorality, adultery, cases of abandonment. So, so let, let me say this just pastorally to us. If you're wrestling through this topic, whether through the pain of a divorce from your past, maybe even something that you're currently walking through with you or a loved one, please don't do it alone. Come talk to one of your pastors, go to your life group leader, go to a a trusted uh, leader or counselor. We would be honored to walk through what the scriptures say about your situation to help you hear God's heart on the matter. And I also say this, if you're in a situation where you're being harmed or mistreated, know this, the Lord cares about you. He cares about you. Don't walk through that alone. Marriage is beautiful. The gospel is so clearly seen in the covenant of marriage, that which is why divorce, even, even a biblical divorce, carries a lot of pain with it. So wherever you are in this, The Lord cares. He cares about your pain and he also cares about your personal holiness. Ultimately, it's not better that we would explain away God's teaching, but rather to know it, to submit to it, to obey it. Okay, so now I I wanna look at what Jesus is saying here in the context as he speaks about this to the Pharisees. I want us to see how they have twisted and minimized the law, even about divorce to allow for sin. What do we know about what the law taught of of divorce? The law prohibited a man from dealing harshly with his wife. There were strict guidelines around marriage granted by the Mosaic law. Very, Very few exceptions given which would have permitted a divorce. And many of the laws around marriage were there to protect the vulnerable, to protect women, to care for them. 
Some laws also were to protect men in marriage. So you weren't uh, to take advantage of a woman. You weren't to abandon your wife. You weren't to withhold provision from her in marriage, according to the law. You weren't to cast her off because you just wanted to move on. Because in doing so, some other man might then come behind you and take her as his wife. And where the law was ignored and marriage was treated as lowly, where, where, uh, where it was violated, the end result was such vulnerable women, little or no financial protection in the world, being forced into another marriage, sometimes being passed from husband to husband. And Christ is saying, the law doesn't give room for this sort of treatment in marriage. But what did the Pharisees do with the law? As with many laws in the area of marriage, the Pharisees gave themselves plenty of wiggle room. Instead of holding fast to the tight restrictions around marriage and divorce, given by God as a protection, instead they added their own clarifying commands enabling them to divorce often and legally, that they would seem right when they did it. One rabbi said that if a wife messes up dinner, then you can divorce her. I didn't say that. Uh, One rabbi said that. Another said, if a man finds another woman to be prettier, he can divorce And these exceptions, these clarifying exceptions that were made by rabbis and teachers and experts in the law, these made the husband free, free to cast one wife off and to take on another. And by this misuse of the law, they were trampling the heart of God, trampling God's heart for the poor, for the vulnerable. I love that this is a primary theme in Luke, particularly of all the gospels. This is a theme we see in Luke is God's heart for the poor, God's heart for the marginalized, for the vulnerable, for women. And this is why Jesus uses this example. You aren't just dropping one stroke from the law. You're devouring the very ones the law seeks to protect. And you're doing it all with the synagogue logo on your bumper sticker. You're wearing your fancy religious garments, you're receiving praise, you're representing God to the people, and you're behaving like the devil. And he says, you, you may have people fooled, but God is not fooled. Are there ways that we are prone to do this? Ways in which we walk in piety, we say the right prayers, we go to the right Bible studies, But then in our own lives, we trample the weak. We feast on sin. We use others to make ourselves look better. We, I'm so encouraged by our church family and the heart that I see that so many of you have for for the marginalized, for uh, for people who are not usually cared for, for refugees, for uh, for even last night at the the parents' night out, caring for these foster families. I'm so encouraged by so many of you who, who spend your time with the poor, uh, who, who are, have a heart for your Muslim friend or your coworker. I, I love hearing stories like that for, your, for a neighbor who doesn't know Jesus and is in need. And you, how can we help them? Christ's call to us is to care for orphans, 
to care for widows, to care for the outcast, the refugee, for those in distress. And Lord, would Lord help us if we would neglect these things under the guise of holiness. Jesus then caps off the teaching with a story. The religious performer may look just, they may trample the weak and keep looking holy doing it. You may have everyone else fooled, but that leads to number three, the religious performer can't hide forever. They can't hide forever. If you remember back in chapter 12, Jesus was warning his disciples about hypocrisy and he said, there's, there's nothing covered that won't be uncovered. Nothing covered that won't be uncovered. And here is that statement in a story. Some debate whether this is a parable or an illustration that Jesus is using. Um, but whatever it is, uh, I, I think we have a good cultural, actually a good like kind of more modern cultural parallel for this story. And you may think this is funny, but this is the Ebenezer Scrooge moment for the Pharisee. You remember this? This is, this is like a tale we all know, right? The Dickens tale, three ghosts come to visit Scrooge. Uh, and, and, but here, Jesus is just skipping right to the end. This is the final warning. The ghost of Pharisee future is what we get here. Remember when the final ghost, he takes Scrooge and he takes him to, to he sees the, the empty seat where, where Tiny Tim once sat. And then he takes him to uh, the grave and he shows Scrooge his grave and there's no one there to grieve Scrooge. That's basically what Jesus is doing here, except Jesus can go further. Jesus can actually show us beyond the grave. And the, but the warning is very similar. If, if you keep on acting like you're righteous without being made righteous, if you can continue praying your showy prayers on the street corners, but mistreating the weak, abandoning your wives, then death is coming and eternal judgment is coming with it. And death will be the final unmasking of the religious performer. There is no faking it in eternity. No self-justification, no blaming or defending that will hold up against the flames. Unless you are made righteous, this story will be your future. Look at verse 19. There was a rich man who would dress in purple and fine linen, feasting lavishly every day. But a poor man named Lazarus, covered with many sores, was lying at his gate. He longed to be filled with what fell from the rich man's table, but instead the dogs would come and lick his sores. So, so here it is. It's this extreme dichotomy, these two men. The rich man, this man's loaded. He's stacked. He's got that drip. Is that what the kids say? I don't know. Did I do that right? Sorry. Uh, that's, that was for them. Uh, He's, he's rich. He's got it all. This is the Pharisee. Remember what we heard about the Pharisee earlier in the chapter? The Pharisees were lovers of money. Rich and adored on the earth. You see it by the fancy clothes, the beautiful exterior. They loved money, loved receiving good things, never lacking anything they needed. All of life was a feast. Every desire filled. Their stomachs always full. Steak fajitas daily. And then there's the poor man. This man has nothing. He's not covered with fine clothes. What is he covered with? Sores. 
He's not walking around and just taking a seat down at the gate. No, he's lying at the gate, likely an invalid, had to be carried there, laid there so he could beg. Any food for this guy? He wishes. He wishes food would fall from the rich man's table that he could have it. But even if it did, the dogs would probably get it first because the dogs are there feasting on him, licking his sores. He's abused, overlooked, disgusting. This is, this is representative of all that the Pharisees hated. Everyone they deemed unworthy, the unclean, the tax collectors, the poor. And now what comes to both men? Death. Rich or poor, it doesn't matter. It's coming. Death is no respecter. And what does death bring? Look at verse 22. One day the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torment in Hades, he looked up and saw Abraham a long way off with Lazarus at his side. What a scene this is. Uh, What we learn here is that despite his earthly suffering, this poor man, Lazarus, he trusted God. Like Abraham, his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Now, this story is not enough by itself to, to build like an end times chart, if you're into that sort of thing, like to give, a, a, you know, diagrams and all that stuff. Um, so I don't know that we should fully try to do that here. Uh, but the Old Testament, I just wanna give us like a picture of it. The Old Testament taught that there was a place of the dead, often called Sheol. And within Sheol, uh, there was a place of suffering called Hades, a place for the wicked, for those who refused God. We see this in the scriptures. But there was also in Sheol a place for the righteous, for those who trust in the Lord. In the New Testament, we see that referred to as Abraham's side or as paradise. We see it right here, Lazarus carried to Abraham's side. We, we saw it with the thief on the cross. Where Jesus says, today, today you'll be with me in paradise. Now, I don't believe Hades is what we actually often refer to as hell, uh, which is coming for all those who refuse Christ. This is the eternal judgment that is to come, but it's similar. And then this place at Abraham's side, it seems that this existed until Christ died and rose again. After which now all the righteous saints are with Christ in heaven. This is where we as believers will be when we die, if we've trusted him until Christ returns and makes all things new. But, but here's the incredible turnaround in this story. The man who knew he needed mercy on the earth, but who had to trust God because he was suffering, now he's comforted for eternity. Comforted for eternity. Meanwhile, the rich man the Pharisee, the one who appeared righteous on the earth, now he begs Lazarus for mercy. The rich man didn't need mercy on the earth. He didn't even need God. He didn't need a justifier. He justified himself. And now this man has no rest, no comfort, no fine meals. Here he is now in agony. He can't even cool his own tongue. Look at verse 24. He says, Father Abraham, he called out, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this flame. 
is, it, just as a side note, isn't it interesting that he, he still sees Lazarus as someone he can ask to run errands? Look at verse 25. Son, Abraham said, remember that during your life you received your good things, just as Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here while you are in agony. And Abraham is telling him, you already got your reward. It's the ultimate reversal. You cared on the earth only about yourself, only about temporal pleasure. And guess what? You got it. The Pharisees flaunted their righteousness. They made themselves look good. They loved the praise of men and they got it. The praise of men was their reward. Remember this warning from Jesus in Matthew 6. He said, so whenever you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be applauded by people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. And so he tells the rich man, I hope it was worth it. I hope the applause of men was worth it because you got it. That was it. You've already received your reward and you trampled others to get it. And now there's no going back. This eternity, this agony is is unending. Look at verse 26. Besides all this, a great chasm has been fixed between us and you so that those who want to pass over from here to you cannot, neither can those cross over uh, from you to us. Verse 27. Father, he said, then I beg you to send him to my father's house because I have five brothers to warn them so that they won't also come to this place of torment. I think it's a little ironic now that this Pharisee who didn't show mercy to others now wants people to receive mercy. He wants his brothers to receive mercy. Go to them, maybe they'll repent. But Abraham speaks, I believe, the heart of God to the Pharisees. The Pharisees, as as Abraham refers to this rich man, he says, son. The Pharisees were the sons of Abraham. They were were God's people, the the Jewish kinsmen of Abraham. I think Abraham's speaking God's heart to to his, his own kinsmen, his sons. Look at verse 29. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. But he told them, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. There is no sign. There is no wonder that will convince them. Not even Lazarus raising from the dead. Why? Jesus had already said why. Because this generation is broken. There's nothing they'll see and, and, and believe. Abraham is saying, Israel has hardened their hearts. They're rejecting the Lord. And they won't see it even if, even when someone rises from the dead. And here's where the story ends. Like in the Dickens story, the ghost of Christmas future points to the grave and says, says left unchanged. This is where you're headed. That was a paraphrase. And Scrooge changes, if you remember. But of course, we know that the Pharisees were unmoved. Like the rich man in the story, many of them will likely die in the hardness of their hearts. They were, they were the ones that Abraham spoke of in verse 31. 
they were not persuaded. Even when Jesus Christ rose from the dead, they were not persuaded. If you are a religious performer today, their fate doesn't have to be yours. Where they remained in their pride, our hope today is this. Our hope is is our final point, number four, that there can be rest for the religious performer. There's rest for the religious performer. It's exhausting, isn't it? Keeping it up, keeping up the show is exhausting. Maybe you're the kind of performer today who, who wants everyone to think you're a Christian. You show up around church stuff, you try to say the right words, but you've never really been honest. You've never really asked Christ for mercy. And a story like this terrifies you because you wonder, man, how am I any different than the rich man? Like what, what's gonna keep me from his fate? And, and listen, if that's you, hear me. There is no other hope when death comes than Jesus. The only hope you have is the risen Christ, his perfect record for you, his death in your place. You can't wear a a good enough mask. You'll never act right enough. But Christ will make you right. And he won't just give you a few tips to live better. He's not just helping you improve a little. No, he forgives you. He doesn't give you a new mask. He gives you a new heart. So cry out to him. If that's you today and you just played around with Christianity, ask him to save you. Ask him to save you from all the trying that you've done that he might actually receive you as a son. He'll forgive your sin, receive you as a daughter. He'll make you new. I would encourage you, if if that's you, go talk talk to me after the service. Find one of our prayer team members. Ask him, hey, I don't even know how to pray this. I don't even know what to say, but I, but I know that I've been trying a lot and I don't think it's working. I need Jesus to make me new. I need him to forgive me. We'd love to talk to you about it. We'd love to pray with you about that. Maybe you're another kind of performer today. Maybe you're the kind of performer who's already a Christian, but you've convinced yourself that it's safer to just show a good exterior to everybody else. It's better, it's safer to do that rather than to be honest about what your heart is really like, what what your life is really like. And maybe you're not terrified of, of death, but what really terrifies you is others finding out who you are. Being exposed, having your sin brought to the light. You fear that the real you might be shown to others, especially to other Christians. And, and this is exhausting. This is performing and this hiding. This will wear you down. Listen, here's the good news. There is rest for fakers. There's a refuge for performers. And his name is Jesus. Rest in him. Come to him. And I I want us just to end. I I think there's no better way to end than by just looking at Jesus. Jesus. So for those who are worn out by trying to look good for others, 
Jesus was humiliated for you. He was humiliated for you. Mocked, rejected, so that you could be accepted. He was despised. So that the real you, not the fake you, not the pretend you, the real you could be redeemed. He looked like a fool. He gave up his reputation so that you would know his love. And it's by his stripes, not your accolades, not your good performance, that you will be healed. For those exhausted by using others, trying to compare yourself, trying to press others down so you might look more righteous, Jesus became weak. He put on a breakable body for you so that he might identify with your human weakness. He took on poverty so that you might know true riches. He, he was mistreated so that you could be comforted. And, and now because his, his strength belongs to you, guess what we can do? We can boast in our weakness. We don't have to pretend that we're strong. We can, we can acknowledge our weakness and our sin before others. We can go to our life group and confess sins. We don't have to put on a show there. We can walk in the light, not keeping the worst parts of us in the dark, but instead we can be comforted. And we can be comforted again and again by Christ. We can comfort others again and again by, with Christ when they step out into the light. Oh Lord, would he make us that sort of community where we walk out into the light and we don't, we're, not, we're not repulsed by each other's sins. We're just confessing ours. And then for those who are tired of hiding, afraid you'll be exposed, hoping you've done enough, Jesus will hide you eternally with him. He will grant you rest forever if you trust him. He busted out of the grave so that you don't have to fear death. And if he is your Lord, one day you are going to be swept up to Jesus' side. His arms will be wide open. He receives beggars like you and like me. He's not repulsed by us. His grace is for us. He says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. His love will not run out. It will be forever for you. There is rest. Friends, stop performing. Stop acting. Stop trying to hide. Come to Jesus. Come and confess and repent. Rest in him. He will transform you, not with a better mask, but with a new life, a new heart. Let's pray. Oh, Father, would, would we believe this? Would we not just hear these words of the extravagant grace, the transforming grace that you offer would we not just hear that and go back to our performance? Lord, would we truly believe what's true, that, that you see down to the heart? There's nothing of us that's hidden before you. That your word penetrates. 
that it, that, it, that it goes down, cuts between joint and marrow. That there's nothing that it can't get to in us. And Lord, would we believe that? And will we therefore not try to hide from you? Will we not try to hide from each other? So Lord, make the gospel true to us. Make it sweet to us this morning. Make it what we cling to today. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.